Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with certified financial planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Well, good afternoon, Miss Pierce. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Mr. Stanley? Well, you know, I don't know whether to address you as Ms. Pierce or Sharon or Dr. Pierce these days. You know, I hear people call you doctor and I go, who, who are you talking about? Who is that? Well, you, you know, the Sharon? only person I make call me that is Pierce, my husband. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one who has to call me Dr. Pierce. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, it's good to see you. I hate you're not in the studio with me today, but uh, oh, I know. You know, at least this Zoom thing kind of has worked for us through COVID, and you know, it's given us a lot of opportunities as well. So, so we have another wonderful guest that, you know, you sort of twisted this person's arm, from what I'm understanding. But, um, yes, she didn't yell too loud, though. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so we have Becky Patton with us today. Becky, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you today. Well, we're delighted to have you. And for our listeners who might not know about you, and you have a very long bio here, um, why don't you tell them just a little bit about you? And if you leave anything out, we'll make sure to point out the important stuff for you. Sure. So, you know, I've been a nurse for a few years. <laughs> um, I have a few claims to fame. One of them that people recognize my name for is I am a past president of the American Nurses Association and was president during the time when we were debating, discussing, and passing health care reform with President Obama. So often I was the face that people saw in the voice uh, in talking about uh, what we were trying to get with health care reform. Uh, my paid job today is I am a faculty member. I actually have uh, the first in the nation in endowed professorship for perioperative nursing, of which I'm extremely proud of here at Case Western Reserve, the Francis Payne Bolton School of Nursing. So we put the students back in the OR here as required course. Uh, they're in the OR for seven weeks, which is very um, cool. And it very much is focused on patient safety that extends beyond the OR. So uh, I have a textbook, a very uh, good textbook. It's uh, written with two other colleagues. It's uh, called Nurses Making Policy from Bedside to Boardroom, and uh, the third edition just came out, and I don't make a penny on the book. That's the other thing I like to tell people, and that I've endowed 100% of the money to a scholarship to create a nurse internship at the White House. And I'll talk more about that, because 
I think the policy uh, aspect is a big part of how people recognize me um, is my policy um, recognition. So, well, actually, how I met you was through our mutual friend, Jackie Rawls. And I think Jackie was president of the AANA when you were president of the ANA. Yes, she was. You invited her to the White House, to the Rose Garden at one point, I believe, whenever they had invited uh, nurses to come. Yep. I was given the opportunity to invite 50 nurses to come with me to the to the Rose Garden. And, um, you know, I'm very much a builder. I like to collaborate with people. And so Nurse Anastasia was an important component. And with Jackie and some of the other uh, presidents of AANA, we started partnering and working together. In fact, we shared time celebrating the inauguration together of President Obama. So, and we went to, you know, the Democratic and the Republican national committees together. Um, ANA and AANA are two of the nursing organizations that understand and practice. Uh, they put the money into the priority of health policy and engaging people. So it's a natural alignment. It was a natural alignment with Jackie and and me. And plus, we both like to have a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, we did. That's even yes. better. And you were the top in the top 100 most influential persons in healthcare in 09 and 10. Yes. Wow. Wow. Yes. Well, and that was during healthcare reform. And, you know, you know, here's a part of what people don't remember is the critical role that registered nurses played during that healthcare reform discussion. Our physician colleagues stayed away from it initially until they engaged to get what they wanted out of it. The hospitals also stayed away from initially engaging and endorsing it. But nurses were the first health profession that stood up and said, we need to have health care reform now. And, you know, we did a pretty decent job of incorporating some of the things that we wanted into that uh, legislation. So I'm proud of what our profession accomplished. I think the other thing that was cool about that is I got invited to go to the bill signing. Um, oh, nice. Um, in the celebration, I had a front row seat and uh, I'm the only nurse. And that was a pretty neat thing, too. Wow. Now, something else that I saw in your bio, you were invited by President Bush to tour and meet with the soldiers and nurses at Guantanamo camp in Cuba. Tell us about that. So um, true for all nurses, ethics is the foundation of our practice. And what was happening was in the media, it was reported how the nurses that worked in the, the prison down there, Guantanamo, were involved in force feeding the detainees and that the detainees health records were being utilized to help interrogate them or know how to interrogate them. And so uh, the ANA staff under my signature wrote a letter to President Bush and Donald Rumfeld, the Secretary of Defense, and asked if this was going on. And we got a polite letter back saying, oh, no, not that's not happening. And <laughs> a couple more months go by, some more stories in the media. And so we wrote a second letter and uh, President Bush and uh, Secretary Rumfeld said, why don't you come to Guantanamo and, and tour the camp and see for yourself? And so uh, I was escorted, flew down on a military jet, landed at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, in Cuba and was back home by eight o'clock that night. So it was a whirlwind day. Uh, did I see them force feeding detainees? No. Did I expect to? No. But here's what I walked away with. 
Nurses that wear the military uniform are the invisible heroes in our profession. Mm -hmm. The job to take care of detainees, far it goes beyond anything you would imagine here in the United States as far as the safety and the danger for those nurses. So um, it was a trip that I will never forget. And anybody that wears a military uniform that is a nurse will always have my utmost respect for what they do. Well, Becky, you've had uh, some interesting times in nursing, and we're going to talk today about your viewpoint on the, the state of nursing today. And, you know, nursing has been in media a lot lately, um, some good and some bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what issues do you think are important as we sit here today? So you're absolutely right, uh, Jeremy, about nursing being in the media more and more. You know, in previous times, nurses were only in the media, like when there'd be a, a situation where a nurse would have been accused of stealing drugs or something nasty like that. Right. Uh, I think society knows us better now, so they're paying more attention to us. COVID clearly highlighted who we are and what we do and how we are really the, the persons that provide the care at the most crucial times of somebody's life. But post-COVID now, we're continue to have nurses be visible um, because of the nursing shortage that that conversation continues and part of that nursing shortage leads to the whole issue of staffing you know just two weeks ago there was the big strike in new york city related to nurses going out um, and their their whole issue in their contract was uh, mandatory ratios with some penalty and if you talk to the nurses that went out on strike, they will tell you they achieved their objectives, that they now have mandatory ratios in their contract and that there'll be penalties that will be meaningful when the hospitals does not meet those um, ratios. But I think besides just that issue, there's so many other things related to workplace issues. We're seeing stories of the violence in the workplace. Uh, I think Dr. Pierce and I can both talk about the incivility in some of the places in the hospitals and the OR being one of those locations. And mm-hmm. that whole issue is surfacing and, and people are talking about that because it all rates, relates back to the nursing shortage. Are people leaving their positions because of what reason? And, and I think, so there are so solutions to those things. If you talk to a faculty member like myself, Uh, You know, we'll talk about the lack of compensation or poor compensation for nurse faculty and and that's creating a shortage uh, among that. So those those are clearly the issues that people are seeing. I but I also will say, you know, some of the good things that are coming out of this, though, is the enrollment in nursing programs across the country is up. Young people see what nurses have done or are doing and they want to be a part of that which you wouldn't think that would be the case. But I know here at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, um, we have the most uh, nursing students in our freshman class in our school's history. When I started teaching here, we'd have about 60 to 80 students in the freshman class. Uh, We have 138 this year. And that is true across the country. People, and that's, that. those are individuals that are coming straight out of high school. And then you also are seeing the increase of people that have second degrees, a degree in biology or whatever, and are filling that. That is not fulfilling them. Um, So it's not so much about a job. It's about a career where you feel good about what you've done. So I think COVID helped us with that. 
um, COVID really showed the bright, shining star that nurses are. So what would you say, where are we dropping the ball, I guess, because we know the last research I saw, they're leaving the profession within the first two years after coming out of school. What can we do about that? And how should we look at that? Yeah. So, so Sharon, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it is how we relate to each other. It's relationship based. You know, young nurses do come into the work environment, their first job, and they don't feel that support. Uh, They have nurses that are not nice to them. They don't feel respected for what they bring to the table. And so there's not that level of engagement that you and I had, I think, um, when we were young nurses. I mean, we used to go out after work all the time. Right. My work group was my family, but I don't think people feel that way as much as we did during our generation. I think also the thing about 12-hour shifts. Mm. 12-hour shifts, Mm -hmm. why there's reasons people like them, I I think we need to relook at that because... You know, there's a variety of issues. There's the fatigue factor and then the errors associated with it. But I think the 12 hour shifts also have has an impact on the lack of relationships afterwards. Um, You don't have time to go out after work with people, you know, on your days off. You're you're exhausted. So you don't do things. True. Um, It's funny you would say that because I had just related uh, to Jeremy recently. I uh, went back to a hospital to work for the first time in many years. And I had uh, talked to a CRNA at another facility and she was telling me about this new technique, lung protective ventilation. And I could not wait to get to work at the hospital that I work at a couple days a week because I thought all these new kids that are there, surely they'll know about this. And I want to talk to them. I cannot wait. I walk into the anesthesia lounge. There are five CRNA sitting there, not a sound from anybody because they're all five on their phones. And I said, you know, when do you guys learn from each other? You know, Mm -hmm. we used to sit in the lounge and say, oh my God, I just had this airway. Let me tell you what happened. And then somebody would say, let me tell you, I had that happen to me and this is what I did. And that's how we learned from each other. So I think you're really on to something there. It's they really they crazy. interact so much differently than we did. Now I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't look old, though. Uh, well, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a good filter on Zoom. <laughs> it, is, it is such a different environment. You know, I mean, Sharon, people learn now from social media and from whatever they can find on Google on their phones. And that's more interesting than talking to people. And, you know, that's an art that we've lost to a lot of extent. I think people moving forward, if you're able to communicate with people on a one-on-one basis, that's going to be a lost art because it's not encouraged anywhere anymore. So I guess we can have a a podcast about that as well. No, but so here's a strategy. You know, there are families that at dinner, you're not allowed to have your cell phone out. Ours is one. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the strategy, if you're in charge of an OR or if you're the influential person in the work environment that in the lounge, you can't have your phone out in the lounge. Hmm. The lounge should be a place where you communicate with each other. You take a break and you chill out. Wow. Versus 
using your device. Yeah, I have the basket at the doorway of the lounge. Everybody's got to put their phone in there. Get caught with it is 20 bucks. Yeah, I like that. Leave it to the financial guy to come up with that plan. And that buys lunch for all the other people, you know. Um, well, you know, Becky, my daughter is in nursing school and my wife is a CRNA. So, and then, you know, I'm, I'm with Sharon all the time and talking to nurses and and CRNAs in the community. So I feel like sometimes I know a little bit about nursing, even though I don't know a whole lot. Um, but you know, I know one thing, you know, for my daughter going through nursing school is it's hard. Nursing school Mm -hmm. is, it's a hard curriculum. I mean, you know, I look at what she did to get through nursing school and she'll graduate in May. And I think back to when I was in business school, if I would have had to do what she's doing, there would have been no way I would have made it through. I wasn't disciplined enough. I don't know if I was smart enough at the time, um, but I've learned over the years, but you know, it, it is definitely hard. And when you look out there at the issues that are surrounding the nursing community, what few issues do you think are, are should be prioritized and addressed, and how would you do that? I think it depends on where you're sitting at. Again, I would come back down to a relationship-based interaction, to know people, to let people know that they're valued and they're respected. And, you know, it's sort of like everything I learned in kindergarten. It Hmm. goes back to some basic things for us as healthcare providers as to how do we relate with people. But it also relates to how do you relate up the chain and laterally in that, you know, part of the struggles that nurses have at the bedside today is not having enough supplies. Mm. They don't have enough time. There's those kind of issues. And for me, some of that then goes directly back to are nurses engaged in the operations of the institute they work for? Are they on the practice committee? Are they on the purchasing committee? Are we buying supplies that are cheap and don't work right? Mm. Uh, and so that's the other focus I have in my in my practice when I was a staff nurse, but also as a nurse leader is, are nurses involved in the right policy discussions to help us? Because I think part of the crankiness, and I'll call it crankiness, the crankiness <laughs> that we have in our profession among each other is because I can't do my job the way I was taught. And that may be because I don't have enough time to do it, or I don't have the supplies to do it, or I have too much to do. It's that whole workload that there's just too much for one person to possibly do. And then I think that comes down to people have to be comfortable to say, this is unsafe. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar, Jeremy or or Sharon, I'm gonna guess Sharon is, is there's something called team steps. Mm-hmm. Team steps is an evidence-based approach to communicating with each other. Mm. And the one thing that I love is the one that's called cuss. I'm concerned about this unsafe situation. And so um, I use that. I mean, I use that even with my dean sometimes mm. about what's the ratio of students in my clinicals. Mm. But you have to know those things to use them. And so, I mean, there's so many factors of what's going on in the profession right now that makes it challenging and that's not even taking care of the patients the patients themselves are so critically different and, and more sick 
Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504-394-6557. Let me address something you spoke of just a minute ago about nurses not having the things that they need. And, you know, anytime that there's any cuts in a hospital, it's always something that affects nurses because we are seen as a cost center, not a revenue producer. What do you think are some strategies to change that situation? It's modeled after the hotel industry. The maid comes with the room. Guess what? The nurse comes with the room at the hospital. How do we change nursing to a revenue generator? So I'm going to suggest, I'm going to answer you, but I'm also going to point you toward a resource that I'm finding to be fascinating. So the American Nurses Foundation has a, I think it's right now, it's $20 million campaign on, they're calling Reimagine Nursing, Reimagine mm-hmm. Nursing. And so they're giving out grants to people to have innovative strategies to address some of the issues. And one of them, Sharon, is specifically looking at that reimbursement model. But, you know, it it starts in D.C. I mean, D.C. is really where it ends up at in the Medicare, Medicaid regulations. And, you know, this is this is where we're nurses first. We all have to understand the issue. We all have to then be working with our legislators, because when nurses speak with a shared voice, we can't be um, minimized. People hear us. Uh, and we, we have other examples in our profession where that has happened, where the nursing voice gets so loud, it drums out everything else. I mean, the one that I'd love to come back to is the issue of uh, the stethoscope. Yes, with, show me um, your stethoscope. You know, that was a great example of where social media blew that campaign up. Those ladies on The View almost lost their jobs because nurses spoke up. And so I think the same would be true in educating the legislators and letting them know my vote is dependent on how you vote on these issues, that there needs to be regulation changes in um, CMS related to the bed charge. I mean, a lot of people are studying it, but it really comes down to policy implementation, policy change and policy implementation, which brings up a whole nother can of worms in the sense that Not all nurses vote. Nurses are not always engaged in the political process. They don't know it. They don't understand it. In my um, health policy class, periodically, I will give the naturalized American citizens test. Funny you would say that. that. (laughs) Yeah, we, we do that at our state meeting. Jeremy and I do it. We call it the sip and learn. And we do that. We do it as a trivia Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised. Oh, you no, probably would not. I would not, I would not because what I know is our internationally educated nurses do better 
than our American educated because we don't teach civics anymore. Right. Right. That's right. So, you know, again, and, and to be honest with you, that's why I wrote the health policy textbook. I, you know, I lived in Cleveland, but I, um, when I was the ANA president, I lived in DC. And so my flight home was a 54 minute flight. And I would always fly home from DC depressed, thinking to myself, where the heck are the nurses? Mm-hmm. Why am I the only nurse at these policy tables? And so my textbook that I wrote was intended to be a how to do. We have to teach nurses policy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know that, Sharon. Mm-hmm. You, you, got, you got it. You demonstrate it. And AANA as an organization does a good job, but there are many of the other national nursing organizations, they don't enter into this water. They stay out of the policy because it's hard and it's political. Right. Well, we've always said without the American Nurses Association, there would still be nurses. Without the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, there would not be nurse anesthetists. So it is uh, drummed into CRNAs from the moment they step foot in school. Oh, I know Uh, you guys, you have a great model. I, I, I brag about you guys in the sense that your students from day one understand the value of this political engagement. Mm-hmm. We could all learn from you, from AANA and your program directors. Well, it's because we've had to fight the whole time. Mm-hmm. And cool. I, but I, I, it is a culture and it takes a while to build that culture. And it's it's been there as long as I've been given anesthesia going on 31 years. And I mean, it was it was drummed into me from the time that I started right. school. There's, there's really no reason why nurses don't vote. I mean, we, you know, you could do absenteeism balloting. um, And I think until people understand the power of changing the problems that we don't like, like the bed charge, it's going to continue. We have to have more nurses be engaged and get legislators to understand the need to change it and then to get the CMS um, regulations changed. How long did it take you to write that first book? It's a oh. it's a pretty hefty book. It is. But you know what? I, I'm proud of it in the sense that uh, the second edition got an AJN Book of the Year Award and the third edition got the AJN Book of the Year Award. So um, and it's used in a lot of different academic environments. A couple hospitals have adopted it. Uh, we actually the Pennsylvania State Nurses Association used it as a book club. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, to help people. Because again, it's an easy read book. Uh, it, you know, has over 500 pages. It took a while, but I mean, you know this because I've asked you to participate in it. What's cool, Jeremy, about this book is that there are individual stories along the way of nurses, um, but also oh. giving some very clear steps of, okay, here's what you need to do. So it's not just storytelling, but it's giving it concrete examples of what you can do to change the situations. Oh, very neat. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's kind of go back here because, you know, we've heard of these fraudulent nursing degrees in oh. Florida or allegedly whatever, you, you know, ha- talk a little bit about that. And, and have you seen this before? I mean, has this ever happened before? Well, let me start there at the, the last question. Have I seen it before? Yes, but not in the United States. Oh, um, okay. I, I saw it in the Philippines. Um, in the Philippines, you know, they're, one of their primary products that they produced are nurses that are licensed. Mm-hmm. And, and even mm-hmm. leave 
the Philippines come to the United States or another English-speaking country, and they work. And it just so happened the year that I was the ANA president, uh, there was some fraudulent behavior that was going on, and it was questionable that particular year uh, because NCLEX is provided in country there. Uh. And, and so it was questioned about the legitimateness of people that took the exam that year because the exam questions were known to some people. And so uh. as the ANA president, uh, we wrote a letter to the president of the country. Oh, wow. And basically stated that this was a problem, this was a concern, and that he should declare that anybody that took the exam that year or that time period would need to take it again. And the other part of the letter was because if they come to the United States, we will advocate for those nurses not to be recognized. Hmm. And so that he did. As the president of the country, you know, he had his whatever they called it back then, an executive order or whatever. Uh, those individuals took the exam over. Wow. So um, now widespread, like what's happened in Florida, never, ever, which is like such a total shock to me as to how could that happen? I mean, we do know for-profit schools have increased. There's money to be made on teaching people how to be nurses. Yeah. Um, but I believe there's there's a there should have been a, a safety net, and that is the Board of Nursing in looking at all the schools. Are they accredited? And if they're not, you don't have to make them. But then maybe that is a requirement that you have to graduate from an accredited school to take NCLEX. That's not the case, though. And not just Florida. There's other states. You don't have to graduate from an accredited school. But anyhow, I I think there is there is an opportunity for us as nurses. And I would suggest those that are listening, look at the Board of Nursing, get appointed to the Board of Nursing committees and commissions, get appointed to the Board of Nursing itself. Typically, those are governor appointments. I know here in Ohio, we typically have a nurse anesthetist on the Board of Nursing, which is a great person. They they understand patient care, and they also understand the, the different roles. But I would think that all boards of nursing would pay closer attention to this now. Believe it or not, North Carolina, we, ha- we still elect. You're the only state, in fact. Yes. The only state in the nation in which you elect your board members, which is fantastic. Yes. Yes. Because in other states, their political appointments. Uh, there was a state, I won't name it, when I was a president where the governor was upset with the whole board because he, the, the board would not fire the executive director. Mm-hmm. So the governor removed all but one board member and had to reappoint everybody. Wow. So, um, yeah. Well, let's talk about something else that was in the news in the not too recent past that is fairly alarming. Um, the nurse in Tennessee who was prosecuted for a medication error. You have thoughts on that? Oh, I do. Um, because, you know, it brings me back to other examples where nurses have been charged, criminally charged for errors, even going back as far as Katrina. If you remember what happened with Katrina in the flooding, people uh, ran out of supplies. Oh, that's and, right. And people ran out of supplies. So they didn't, like for some of the long-term care facilities, they ran out of 
basic medications. And nurses and their physicians had to determine who would get those meds and who wouldn't get them. And so those individuals were, in fact, also criminally charged. I don't Um, think I remembered that. Now, it happens in the military. We've interviewed a CRNA. Well, not military or was it mission trips, Jeremy, because they had to make the decision. They only had a certain amount of blood. Mm. And it was a CRNA given the anesthesia. It was a mission like, trip, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. you you just have to stop. So these things happen. I guess they just don't happen in the United States. And that's why people yeah. get. Well, they're not so public. Um, I mean, what made this case public in my view was the fraudulent behavior to begin with. You know, the med air occurred. This nurse did everything right. She reported the med air. She was honest about it. You know, her name was turned into the Board of Nursing. The Board of Nursing had their hearing. They did not encumber her license. They allowed her to continue to practice. And then a year later, somebody whistleblowed to CMS because the hospital fraudulently did not report this as an error. Mm. And so that started the investigation. And then she became the scapegoat, Mm -hmm. which... And you know this. Uh, I think the impact to all of this is that when people are afraid to report errors, there'll be more errors that will occur. Right. You you can't fix the process that caused the error right. if you don't take a look at it because we're so punitive in the healthcare system. Right. Mm-hmm. So the students, for the longest time, this is all they talked about, about the nurse in Tennessee and what that impact was. So we have to have a system that allows people to acknowledge near misses and actual errors. And I think for us as nurses, we get it. We have to do though a job of educating the legislators because that was a piece of what happened in Tennessee. There were people running for office. And in my view, again, they wanted to make a name for themselves, the prosecutor and the attorney general. And and so this was very much um, publicized. But there are other cases where nurses have been criminally charged that are not publicized. A&A actually gets involved in them periodically when it comes to light for them, because, again, we see this as uh, an issue for the profession that we need to make sure we take care of and not to allow those things to happen. So in the Tennessee case, A&A was involved in some of the discussions to help them. And I think they wrote a meekest brief to her defense, mm-hmm. um, as did other <clears throat> nurses and nursing associations. So so how do we stop the criminalization of med errors? Um, by educating others, non-healthcare professionals, about what is the quality assurance process that we need to rely on in healthcare um, so that people do report those errors. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Becky, what do you hear about from students on the state of nursing now since you're a faculty member? They're excited to be nurses. Um, Many of them want to go into advanced practice nursing. No surprise. (laughs) Um, They've 
well, particularly those students that go through my OR course, they love the anesthesia <clears throat> nurse anesthetist role. Uh, they see that as the coolest thing because of the autonomy they have. Uh, our students here in Cleveland are in two of the big academic environments here, so the practice is good. They they see uh, great nurse anesthetists, they see students, and so they fall in love with that. But the students are also much more likely to leave those jobs that they don't like a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. uh, and they talk about that. They They talk about what their expectations are. Uh, sometimes what seems to be a little unrealistic. Yes, you are going to work weekends. Yes, you are going to work holidays. And so my job as a faculty member is to remind them of those things. Um, but they're not afraid to go into this profession. Even though they've heard all these things, they still have this drive to want to do this, to make a difference. I think that's the cool thing about this generation is they do want to make a, make a difference but they're not going to waste their time in an environment that they don't think that will be the impact. They'll go find that environment. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll keep searching until they get where they think they can practice and make a difference. So plus the technology. I love watching these students. I tell them, you're not allowed to leave class until you teach me one tech thing. <laughs> oh, I like that. Uh huh. Or, you know, one one app that I should have on my cell phone. Um, because they know all those cool things. So I think the thing I like that, that the thing that now we have to think about is this whole artificial intelligence and how that now is available to write your papers. But I think that'll be good for us too. We we had a, a discussion in class about that academic integrity and the artificial intelligence that now is available to write papers. And the students brought up some good points about how that can be helpful in writing policy statements and things like that. So um, we we have to listen to the students. I, I think we often shut them down, um, but I think they have, they have things to offer to us. We have to be open to that. Now, do all nursing students now in undergrad have to have a policy course? No. No. Ooh, that's a problem. No. And so uh, for our listeners, what I would say is that, you know, the American Association of College of Nursing, AACN, mm -hmm. uh, last year, I think it was last year or the year before, changed what they called their essentials that described what should be in the curriculum. They did address that policy should be a thread throughout all courses. However, the problem is if you have faculty that don't know policy or not involved in policy or faculty that are not members of professional associations, I, it's hard for them to teach policy effectively and with compassion. And, and I think that's true probably of any topic in that you're much more compassionate about what you're teaching. And so if you're not involved in policy or or you don't know civics, back to that whole issue, the naturalized <laughs> American citizens test, I don't know that we do the best job possible in the undergraduate programs. Yeah. So they have a leadership course. Leadership is a core course that it's taught. And, and so there are elements that people bring in policy in that course, but typically you don't see just a policy course in undergraduate programs. Plus there's too many other classes they have to take. One more question I want to ask you. Um, 
whenever I first got out of anesthesia school, 97% of all nurse anesthetists belong to their professional organization. We have been seeing about a half percent a year drop. We Mm -hmm. still maintain about 90% of all nurse anesthetists belong to the AANA. We've been looking at it because the uh, the ones that we're losing are the ones from straight out of school to five years of practice. Mm-hmm. They're the ones because they don't believe in, they're not joiners. Goes back to the whole thing I think we were talking about earlier. What's happening within the American Nurses Association? Are you guys seeing the same trend that we are? So I can't tell you numbers because I'm not close to it like I was, but I do believe this during COVID, they actually had an increase. Oh, good. Um, but I want you to think about this. There's 4.3 million nurses. If you added up all the nursing nurses that belong to professional association, it, it's less than a million. And of that, 60,000 of them are wow. CRNAs. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> yeah. it's. Wow. I, I know this. When I was president, the tagline I used to say is that 80% of all nurses belong to nothing no nursing association. And then there are many that do belong, but they belong to two. So they're counted twice. So Sharon, you belong to ANA. You probably belong to ANA. You might belong to Sigma Theta Tau. You belong to the American Academy of Nursing. Congratulations on being awarded that. So, you know, there's four or five right there that you belong to. And so um, we did a, we looked at all the different associations and counted up the nurses when I was president. And that's how we came up with 80% belong to nothing. Wow. And, and I think that's a piece is that individuals don't know the critical role that the national associations play in supporting our individual practices and being that policy face in D.C. Uh, you know, we're never going to get the bed changed, the bed issue changed if nurses don't support the professional associations. So nursing students are not made to be a member. And I'll say, because if all nurse anesthesia students, it goes in their tuition and they have to be an associate member of our association while they're a student, while they're a student. And then of course, they're strongly encouraged. And in the case of my director of my anesthesia program, um, I was afraid to not continue to be a member of the professional organization because I just knew somehow she would know that I was not <laughs> come after me. <laughs> my uh, pretty much my entire class. Uh, There's that intimidation factor that we don't want, but did exist. It worked. It worked for us, man. <laughs> do, do you know Sandy? <laughs> do you know Sandy Marie Ouellette? <laughs> You'd understand. <laughs> but, you know, but that that was a piece of how it did work. The mm-hmm. deans would only hire faculty that belonged to the NLN and ANA, okay? You know, directors of nurses and hospitals did the same thing. But that really fell by the wayside. And part of it is people don't know what the professional associations <laughs> do mm-hmm. until they get into trouble. And then they come running to the associations to help them with Fix it. Yeah, with well, that and also, you know, the number of nurses that get in trouble in their practice that then have to go before the board of nursing, and it's too late then. So I, I think faculty has a critical role in this. I agree. But I also believe the every the practicing nurse in the clinical setting also has to reinforce that. 
Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here evaluating this going, you know, nurses are having all these problems getting what they need and what they want, but they're not being represented at the table because mm-hmm. they're individualizing themselves and not part of this collective group. And if you've got 20% or less of 100% out there, I mean, that leaves a lot of variance for stuff that's not getting done. That, I mean, if you could just raise your numbers to 50%, can you imagine what could happen in the nursing arena? I mean, it would be dramatic. I think you're right. And we know that is true because of a couple of the examples of where nurses have spoken um, with declared voice, the stethoscope example, um, the outrage that occurred with um you know, a, a legislator saying nurses, you know, oh, yes, they play cards. How many <laughs> sets of cards did that legislator get she mailed to them? Hundreds of decks of cards. Um, <laughs> so maybe social media. So, you know, m- maybe we need to do something more about educating nurses how to use social media and getting the associations to ramp that up a little bit so that we can get nurses on that. Plus also, you know, both of those issues, it wasn't just the nurses that then joined in, it was spouses of nurses, it was physicians, everybody helped defend what we do. And so maybe that's the strategy too, is to get other uh, stakeholders, FONs, friends of nurses, um, like that, (laughs) to to be supportive in our campaign. So we need more FONs. Absolutely. So As we kind of wrap this up, Becky, why don't you tell us what your favorite memory was when you served as ANA president? And you served two terms. I did. I served served two terms. There there can't have been many people that were that bold. (laughs) (laughs) That's a long time. Well, you know, know, what I will tell you is this. um, Being the ANA president was the hardest job I ever had. Uh, and, you know, I've done it all from bedside to boardroom. I was a chief nurse of a hospital, um, oversaw construction. I mean, I did a lot in my career. Um, but being the ANA president was the hardest job because of managing the politics mm. and the relationships of people. I was lucky. You know, one of the things that I did that was incredibly smart is my master's degrees in psych mental health nursing. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> and, so, and as an OR as an OR director, people would say to me, why are you doing that? Why are you getting a psych degree as an OR director? And I would say, well, it's to take care of the walking wounded, which was staff and physicians. Yes. Yeah. And so it helped me there. Um, you know, I have a lot of memories being uh, the ANA president. Um, some of them were very emotional in meeting with people um, that were the example of why we need a healthcare reform. I remember a nursing student I met at the at the airport. You know, you know how we are as nurses. We look at people and we we can pick out their diseases. And you know, I can see underneath this young lady's clothing that she had a some kind of port. And so we started a conversation. She never knew who I was, and I didn't introduce myself uh, as president. But she proceeded to tell me how, as a nursing student. She worked her butt off. She had to take time off because she couldn't afford to go semester after semester. And then once she graduated, she was so tired. She went and saw her doctor and she had some one of the blood leukemias. Mm. And um, the story was, is that 
they delayed her care because they called it a pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, she got the health care she needed, but it was delayed. And so some of those memories go back to knowing the good that we do as nurses and um, feeling good about that. You know, I have a lot of funny stories. President Obama called me on my cell phone and I didn't answer it because it said a blocked call. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a great picture of him and I where he's making fun of me because he found out that I didn't answer his call. Um, And he's like, who blows off the American presidents? And I was like, well, I guess I did. But I now have this great wave file. It's like, hey, Beck, this is Barack. I'm calling to thank you and the nurses. I mean, so, I mean, there's so many great memories I have, but most of it is knowing what we accomplished. And the Affordable Care Act was a big part of it. And whether you like it at all or not, there's pieces of that Affordable Care Act that is accomplishing exactly what we wanted to do and change the paradigm. It's about, you know, wellness and prevention and not disease management. Which is what nurses espouse from the very beginning. Yes. Yes. Well, Becky, we want to thank you for being on the show today and uh, for all your great stories and and all the stuff that you've done to promote the nursing community. I mean, that's very evident here. And, uh, you know, what a great career you've had thus far. And I'm sure you're still doing great things today. And uh, we'll hear about some of those another time. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, you're more than welcome, and it's been a pleasure. And I think what you guys are doing is fabulous because you sharing other people's stories is what helps us all learn. And you have to be engaging people that otherwise might not be engaged. So don't stop. Thank you. And we're engaging those people who are on their cell phones in the break room because they're listening to Beyond the Mask podcast. (laughs) That's what they're doing. (laughs) All righty. Thank you. Let me know if I can help you again. All right. Well, Sharon, I think that's a wrap. I think so. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. Sharon, if they like our show, want to help us grow, what are some things they can do? Well, the best way to help us to grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive. We know there's way too much negativity in this world. Yes, tell all your friends, share us on social media. We grow by word of mouth. We're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on the way to number... Number one, of course. Yes, we're already number one in the CRNA community. And the sky is the limit. That's right. Until next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living 
by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.